Let us pray. Gracious God, open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, it happened in what for us was the third week of the fall semester, two days after Founders Day. It is September the 18th, 592 B.C. A 31-year-old prophet, also a priest, an eccentric man with wild eyes and a passion for God, is sitting in his house in Babylon. He's not in his home in Jerusalem. That house is laying in rubble, but in Babylon. Well, like Ezekiel and his wife, some of you are here this morning also living away from home right now, whether it be Ottawa, Muskoka, Dallas, or the other side of the world. That's tough. I can imagine Ezekiel, the young cleric like you, in training for such, finding the same sorts of ways to stay busy, to keep your mind off events at home. And when you get good news of home through FaceTime or Skype, it's great. The pictures you see of family, friends, and God's country, wherever your God's country might be, are very comforting. But on this day, Ezekiel's faith time with friends in Jerusalem is far from reassuring. In fact, it is his, night, it is his night, worst nightmare. More, he must share this nightmare as a sort of personal lesson for the elders who have gathered in his house, probably hoping to hear a prophecy of good news rather than what they actually hear. You see, literally, literally in a flash, Ezekiel is taken up in a fiery vision of shining metal and by a hand that grasps him by the hair and God in turn gives him an on-the-scene FaceTime session with his friends in the Jerusalem temple. But what he sees is obscene. In fact, so offensive is this vision that in the last vignette, the Hebrew text has been changed by the scribes from God saying, they put a branch to my nose to God saying, they put a branch to their nose. We don't know the gesture, but it's likely the equivalent of Israel giving God the middle finger. Ironically, the vision begins with the seeing of the glory of God, normally a good thing, right? At the inner entrance to the northern gate of the temple. But seeing the glory of God is instead a shocking embarrassment. Why? Because at the same entrance to God's own holy house is what is called an image of jealousy. Now, as we know from the use of the special word for image here, it is an image of a Canaanite goddess, likely the goddess Asherah. Now, bad as that alone is, archaeology since 1979 has shown that many apostate Israelites, who included many within the royal house of Samaria, Worship this goddess on the understanding that she was the wife of God. To make matters worse, this goddess normally poses buck naked. It's no wonder that to God, so God tells Ezekiel, this image is such a despicable affront to the glory of God that God declares that he will soon leave his sanctuary. That's a scary thought, isn't it? God leaving the temple? The church, as it were? No one believed things like that would ever, could ever get to the point where God in his glory would stop residing in his temple in Jerusalem. 
But listen to what God says in verse 6. It's a lesson to Ezekiel and to the elders sitting in his house who represent the people of God and who share in the guilt of this transgression. And it is a lesson indirectly to the leadership of the house, the church today. Do you see, O mortal, what they are doing? The utterly detestable things the house of Israel is doing here? Things that will drive me far away from my sanctuary. Will God ever leave the church for its apostasy? I don't know. Ask our theology profs. In the meantime, I ask, do you see, O Wycliffe College, what they are doing? Will you take heart and learn from it? God is holy. God is sovereign. No theological tenet framed by mere humans can trump the sovereign will of God. Things get worse. Ezekiel is next taken to the entrance of the courtyard of the inner frame of the temple complex. Everything looks in order, and so it often does, but wait. There's a blotch on the wall near the entrance. It takes over a secret entrance that leads to a basement area where there are murals of animals and bugs and lots of other idols. And here, venerating images of animals and all sorts of other idols in little coves, there are elders, the equivalent of our modern-day clergy. Not lay people, not raiders, not deacons, but 70 well-trained students of theology, including one from a pious family that helped promote the reforms of King Josiah. And here these clerics are burning incense, not sensing the altar, but sensing murals of snakes, cockroaches, and baboons. This is possibly, literally, a scene from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. God again asks Ezekiel, Do you see, O mortal, what they are committing in the dark? Each one in his room of idols, says the Lord. And listen to their justification. It has a familiar ring to it when I think of our culture. The Lord does not see us. If there is a God, he's long ago departed from the scene. Do you see, O Wycliffe College, what they are committing in the dark? Each one in his or her room of idols? The next scene involves women, mourning as they presumably venerate the god Tammuz, the ancient Sumerian shepherd god. Whatever the right involved, it caught the imagination specifically of women, and specifically involved mourning. One text from about 250 years later than our text describes Tammuz's wife Ishtar weeping over her husband. Many scholars think Tammuz journeyed to the netherworld and back, and that this corresponded to the dry and fertile agricultural seasons, respectively. Allow me to digress. The reference here to women reminded me of life in our home in the late 1990s when Marion was writing a commentary on Ezekiel, written from and for the perspective of women. She would often end her day by saying, gosh, Ezekiel sure didn't like women. I would kind of cringe with a sense of guilt and fear, but I was assured to hear her say as well, God didn't like men much more either. Well, not long ago, Marion and I heard a female Old Testament scholar at an academic conference holding up these women as a role model for women today in the church and in the synagogue. Now, of course, I believe there are good, godly, faithful forms of feminism that redress wrongs that ought to be made right. 
But apostate theological novelty of this sort is not the way to do it. Thank God for godly, theologically orthodox feminists like Fleming Rutledge, Annette Brownlee, Marion Taylor, Anne Jervis. Do you see, O mortal, do you see this Wycliffe College? But the absolute worst is yet to come, and so with it, a powerful message. Lastly, Ezekiel sees 25 men, later identified as priests, who quite literally are turning their backs to the Holy of Holies and are instead bowing towards the east to the sun. Now, what you might think is shocking is that they were turning their backs on God, and that's bad enough. But what is shocking is that they weren't facing the sun instead of turning towards the Lord. They were turning in the direction of what they understood to be an image or an icon of Yahweh himself in the form of the sun. You'll have to take my words on this, I'm afraid. I've written a lot about it elsewhere. So as with the first scene, these worshipers had incorporated a form of worship that was popular among pagans at the time into something that came over time to be understood as Orthodox Yahweh worship. Well, how do we know that it came to be accepted as Orthodox Yahweh worship? Well, my friends, what happens in the temple, as with a church cathedral, happens only with the sanction of key segments of the leadership. Well, I wonder if by now you may have seen a certain pattern of behavior that's reflected elsewhere in Scripture. God is taking Ezekiel on a tour of a theological crime scene, and a crime scene somehow involving violence as well, according to verse 17. Here is the law text against the backdrop of which our scene is a crime of epic proportions. It's Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 14. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. And the Lord commanded me at the time to teach you statutes in Israel that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. And as I read the rest, compare the infractions to our scene, and more importantly, hear it as words given to us as well as to Israel. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or a female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise up your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted, if at all, to other peoples of the world. Well, now you might comfortably be saying to yourself, I don't worship images of God, animals, or bugs, and I expect that's true. But as the climactic scene involving the sun illustrates, we humans are very good at rationalizing what we do. We're good at finding ways to reconcile things in our culture that we admire, envy or fear, or comfortably orthodox ways, and turn into comfortably orthodox ways of worship. Well, I don't know how you rationalize things, and I wish I understood even better how I do, but here's how the sun worshipers rationalize things. They likely said, well... The second commandment forbids us from making images of God. Look at the sun. I didn't make it. 
And remember when Joshua prayed to the Lord for more time to defeat the enemy in Joshua 10? Who answered the Lord's prayer but the sun itself? And isn't the Mesopotamian sun god Shamash a good god? In fact, like Yahweh, he's known as a god of justice and the giver of laws to his people. And you see, September the 18th was close to the time of the autumnal equinox. And early in the morning, the, the rays of the sun shone directly into the innermost part of the temple. So from the time of Joshua, right through to the time of Ezekiel, to the Qumran community and on into Byzantine period, the people of Israel argued that the sun was a harmless, God-given icon of Yahweh. Well, how do we apply this text further? Well, there are some big-ticket items that qualify as syncretism and some smaller ones that are trickier to negotiate for not being so clear. I think the big-ticket items we can probably guess. The view that Jesus is not God. The view that he's one of many ways to God. That all religions are essentially the same. That God is known, now known to be too nice to get hung up about sin. After all, isn't that a vestige of the Victorian era? And though it might not be syncretistic in itself, I think the apostate belief that we can no longer take the Bible seriously anymore, at least to the point of doing what it actually says, opens up a door of relativism that welcomes syncretism, if only for not having any other basis any longer for judging what is syncretistic or not. Well, what about the harder-to-decide small-ticket items? A relevant example has to do with contemporary church practices that involve relating the gospel to our culture. One writer has defined syncretism in this context of contemporary church life as follows. Syncretism in this case is the mixing of Christianity with something else such that they become a different gospel. Syncretism can take place within a positive thinking gospel context, a nationalistic gospel context, or an emerging culture. Syncretism, this writer concludes, happens more than we might know. Future leaders of missional congregations must walk a fine line between two extremes. On the one hand, there is obscurantism, which in saying don't change anything, things like changing, to, uh, changing uh, outdated forms of music, such as old hymns, and insisting on organ music alone, these unnecessarily prevent people in our culture from hearing and embracing the gospel. And then on the other hand, there is syncretism, which in saying most everything and anything goes, things like the creed, the confession of sins, the cross, and the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, risk letting our culture change the gospel, in which case it can become no longer the gospel at all. I'm glad for the example that we offer in our chapel of a wide range of musics and instruments which we have. Well, by now I've gone from the theologically disastrous portrait of Ezekiel to matters far too tame for our text. Let me put the question to Ezekiel generically, to us. Do we see the sorts of things that offend God, Glenn Taylor and Wycliffe College Chapel? And this leads to a more personal question. What sorts of things like this might I be doing, thinking that God does not see or care, or relying on a doctrine of God that dares him to leave us on the grounds that somehow he will not, he cannot? I have to tell you I've known residents of this college from the long past, including at least one theology student, to have lived out a private addiction to pornography, including that including children, in the secrecy of his dorm room. 
So let me ask, in what ways might we be rationalizing an accommodation that is contrary to God's revealed will and belonging rather to the dark side? Well, if that sounds too much like a moralistic question from an Old Testament professor, allow me a reminder that I myself need, namely that Paul says nothing different in the epistle to the Corinthians. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Ezekiel's words are as relevant today as they were in the 6th century B.C., and that's hardly a surprise. After all, as one writer has put it, saying of Ezekiel, his religion was very much of a minority, a minority struggling to survive in a pluralistic, multicultural society. The powerful country where he was exiled had many gods, and Ezekiel only had one. Yet he firmly proclaimed the message that there was one God who would ultimately save his people, regardless of what other nations might do. May we commit ourselves, by God's grace, to faithfully bear witness to the one true God and to uphold unchangingly the saving message of the gospel in our day to the glory of God, to a glory of God that we pray may not leave us as it did one day the temple of Jerusalem. Amen.